0: We officially announce that we are running to serve as your president of the United States of America.
1: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. What do
0: you mean, we? white
1: I man. I something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how i get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right here i am
0: stuck in the middle with
1: you yep yes i'm stuck in the middle
0: with from pacifica radios kpfk in los angeles this is your that's broadcast that's heard on 90.7 fm in los angeles 91.7 fm kyaq up in oregon coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org On Stitcher, on TuneIn, on iTunes, on the Progressive Voices channel, streaming on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com joining you for another action-packed thrilling adventure known as the Bradcast. Great to talk to you. Glad you could be here with us. Uh, We have uh, well we have a serious day a serious show today uh, to get to between this uh, Iran deal that has been struck. We'll get to that momentarily. Uh, and a, a an actual serious element of the presidential uh, primary election that's going on right now. And I know it's hard to find something serious to talk about because it's just such a ridiculous uh, well, clown car is the is the word that comes to mind, but you know, there are some serious issues underscoring the clown car on the Republican side and frankly, a serious, I don't want to call it a debate yet on the Democratic side, but some serious issues and uh, serious questions about the way this country will move forward on the Democratic side. Uh, We'll specifically talk about, um, well, we're going to talk about the Iran deal, but I wanted to also talk about Scott Walker, who in that opening quote there says, what does he say? We are officially announcing that we are running for president of the United States.
1: Yes, I don't know if he's talking about the royal we or what exactly
0: me and the Koch brothers what does he mean by we are running for president of the United States uh anyway I guess that's him and his wife but so we'll get to the serious stuff in just one moment but since I know you want some red meat since I would know I know you always like the the politics I know I get your mail and you can send me email bradcast at bradblog.com uh, here's some good news for you Trump lovers out there, and of course I include myself amongst them, and I know Desi Doyen, I know you're a big Trump fan, now you wear your uh, Donald Trump t-shirt every <laughs> single day here to the show. Getting a little stinky. Trump uh, Trump tops national poll for second straight week. That's right, Donald Trump has topped the rest of the GOP presidential field for the second time in as many weeks, according to a new Suffolk University USA Today poll. The national poll of voters who identify as Republicans or independents shows Trump in the lead with 17%. This is, of course, among Republicans. 17% uh, favor Trump, followed by former Florida Governor Jeb Bush with just 14%. Uh, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, Senator Ted Cruz, I'm actually surprised to see him this high, uh, and Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, Round out the top five with 8 percent, 6 percent and 5 percent, respectively. Uh, another poll, however, shows Bush edging out Trump. This came out yesterday, according to the uh, uh, Monmouth University poll. Found Bush at the top of the pack with 15 percent, followed by Trump at 13 percent. So certainly within the margin of error, it's a 5.4 percent margin of error so. Uh, yeah, Don, you know Donald Trump, who uh, just about a month ago now everyone was laughing at and uh, still laughing at because he is quite funny.
1: Well, he is. He's uh, he very is. entertaining.
0: But I don't think he's going to go away uh, quite as quickly as so many in the national media still seem to think. Paul Krugman uh, was asked about uh, was asked about Donald Trump on uh, by Bloomberg at the beginning of the week, and Paul Krugman got his answer half right. He said uh, that Donald Trump, he's a belligerent, loudmouthed racist with not an ounce of compassion for less fortunate people. In other words, he's exactly the kind of person the Republican base consists of and identifies with. I completely agree. That's why Donald Trump is doing so well. And uh, and that's something that i got to say, we called it right here on this show right off the bat when everyone was saying it was a joke that he was running. Krugman goes on to say it's clear that the very things that Upper West Side New Yorkers find detestable about him are exactly what endear him to the Republican base, which is basically people who see who see in him everything, even the big red face and the yelling that makes him their kind of guy. Then Krugman goes on to get it wrong. He says, we saw the same thing in 2012, one after another, basically ludicrous candidates, but loudmouthed, angry, ludicrous candidates shot to the top of the polls. But in the end, they nominated Mitt Romney, who on substance was not that different from the others. And probably the same thing will happen this time around with Jeb Bush playing the role. I'm not quite so sure that it happens that way. Now, it might once people start uh, dropping out of the race and their support gets thrown to others. Uh, but I don't know that Jeb Bush will play that role. Uh, I don't frankly, I don't know that uh, Trump will drop out. Uh, we'll We'll see what happens, but I think uh, it's we've got three contenders here, it seems to me right now for the nomination. Donald Trump, Jeb Bush, and Scott Walker. And Scott Walker is a combination of Jeb Bush and uh, Donald Trump, frankly. So I think he could be the uh, the consensus candidate.
1: And that's a scary thought.
0: Unless he, uh, uh, you know, makes a complete jackass out of himself on the national stage under the uh, the hot lights of a national campaign, and that certainly could happen. And then all bets are off, and uh, any one of the fifteen uh, who are running for the Republican Party could show up. But anyway. Um, I'm not so sure that he's going to go away. I've seen a lot of people in the uh, uh, the so-called respectable media talking about uh, that Donald Trump's going to drop out any day and yada yeah. yada. He'll be replaced. Jeb Bush is the guy. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know if they're right about that, but I do know that they're right about the idea that he's a belligerent, loudmouth, racist that reflects the uh, the exactly uh, what the Republican base consists of and identifies with at this time, and that's why he's doing so well. And that's why he's going to continue to do well for quite a while, I suspect. All right. uh, Now on to some serious things and we will get back to politics here in a moment. But, you know, uh, the uh, the Iran deal was announced today and um, predictably the Republicans, those heads you've heard exploding all day, those are Republican heads exploding and and some Democrat heads exploding, frankly, about this uh, Iranian nuclear deal. But since I suspect the majority of the mainstream media today and in the weeks to follow are all going to focus on the politics of this, I want to focus, if I could, on the actual deal so we know what it is that we can then move forward and fight about over the next few weeks. All of these Republicans came out, all condemning the deal, of course, uh, some of them on just ridiculous bases. And we will talk about that. Scott Walker was one of them. We will talk about his ridiculous bases uh, for for rejecting this deal out of hand, and we'll talk about a more serious uh, issue concerning Scott Walker in a little bit with my guest Ian Milheiser, constitutional law expert from Think Progress. Um, but before we go down that road. Let's look at what the actual deal is, or at least what President Obama says the actual deal is. You can choose to believe him or not, but at least let's all agree on uh, on on the facts uh, before we get into the politics. And for that, I want to play an extended clip from Obama today announcing this deal. He sort of talked about it on two levels. He talked about the specifics of the deal itself and then about the politics. I'm going to stick for the moment to the specifics, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about the uh, politics. Here was Barack Obama earlier this afternoon talking about this uh, deal with Iran after two years of trying to hammer out a deal following on decades of trying to uh, work out a deal with Iran. President of the United States today.
2: After two years of negotiations, the United States together were international partners has achieved something that decades of animosity has not – a comprehensive, long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. This deal demonstrates that American diplomacy can bring about real and meaningful change – change that makes our country and the world safer and more secure. This deal is also in line with a tradition of American leadership. It's now more than 50 years since President Kennedy stood before the American people and said, let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. He was speaking then about the need for discussions between the United States and the Soviet Union, which led to efforts to restrict the spread of nuclear weapons. In those days, the risk was a catastrophic nuclear war between two superpowers. In our time, the risk is that nuclear weapons will spread to more and more countries, particularly in the Middle East, the most volatile region in our world. Today, because America negotiated from a position of strength and principle, we have stopped the spread of nuclear weapons in this region. Because of this deal, the international community will be able to verify that the Islamic Republic of Iran will not develop a nuclear weapon. This deal meets every single one of the bottom lines that we established when we achieved a framework earlier this spring. Every pathway to a nuclear weapon is cut off, and the inspection and transparency regime necessary to verify that objective will be put in place. Because of this deal, Iran will not produce the highly enriched uranium and weapons-grade plutonium that form the raw materials necessary for a nuclear bomb. Because of this deal, Iran will remove two-thirds of its installed centrifuges, the machines necessary to produce highly enriched uranium for a bomb, and store them under constant international supervision. Iran will not use its advanced centrifuges to produce enriched uranium for the next decade. Iran will also get rid of 98 percent of its stockpile of enriched uranium. To put that in perspective, Iran currently has a stockpile that could produce up to 10 nuclear weapons. Because of this deal, that stockpile will be reduced to a fraction of what would be required for a single weapon. This stockpile limitation will last for 15 years. Because of this deal, Iran will modify the core of its reactor in Iraq so that it will not produce weapons-grade plutonium. And it has agreed to ship the spent fuel from the reactor out of the country for the lifetime of the reactor. For at least the next 15 years, Iran will not build any new heavy-water reactors. Because of this deal, we will, for the first time, be in a position to verify all of these commitments. That means this deal is not built on trust. It is built on verification. Inspectors will have 24-7 access to Iran's key nuclear facilities. Iran will have access to Iran's entire nuclear supply chain, its uranium mines and mills, its conversion facility, and its centrifuge manufacturing and storage facilities. This ensures that Iran will not be able to divert materials from known facilities to covert ones. Some of these transparency measures will be in place for 25 years. Because of this deal, inspectors will also be able to access any suspicious location. Put simply, the organization responsible for the inspections, the IAEA, will have access where necessary, when necessary. That arrangement is permanent. And the IAEA has also reached an agreement with Iran to get access that it needs to complete its investigation into the possible military dimensions of Iran's past nuclear research finally, Iran is permanently prohibited from pursuing a nuclear weapon under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which provided the basis for the international community's efforts to apply pressure on Iran. As Iran takes steps to implement this deal, it will receive relief from the sanctions that we put in place because of Iran's nuclear program, both America's own sanctions and sanctions imposed by the United Nations Security Council. This relief will be phased in. Iran must complete key nuclear steps before it begins to receive new sanctions relief. And over the course of the next decade, Iran must abide by the deal before additional sanctions are lifted, including five years for restrictions related to arms and eight years for restrictions related to ballistic missiles. All of this will be memorialized and endorsed in a new United Nations Security Council resolution. And if Iran violates the deal, all these sanctions will snap back into place. So there's a very clear incentive for Iran to follow through, and there are very real consequences for a violation. That's the deal. It has the full backing of the international community. Congress will now have an opportunity to review the details, and my administration stands ready to provide extensive briefings on how this will move forward. As the American people and Congress review the deal, it will be important to consider the alternative. Consider what happens in a world without this deal. Without this deal, there is no scenario where the world joins us in sanctioning Iran until it completely dismantles its nuclear program. Nothing we know about the Iranian government suggests that it would simply capitulate under that kind of pressure, and the world would not support an effort to permanently sanction Iran into submission. We put sanctions in place to get a diplomatic resolution, and that is what we have done. Without this deal, there would be no agreed-upon limitations for the Iranian nuclear program. Iran could produce, operate, and test more and more centrifuges. Iran could fuel a reactor capable of producing plutonium for a bomb, and we would not have any of the inspections that allow us to detect a covert nuclear weapons program. In other words no deal means no lasting constraints on Iran's nuclear program. Such a scenario would make it more likely that other countries in the region would feel compelled to pursue their own nuclear programs, threatening a nuclear arms race in the most volatile region of the world. It would also present the United States with fewer and less effective options to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon.
0: That was the president of the United States, Barack Obama, talking about the uh, deal that was struck today uh, with Iran and five other countries, uh, China, France, Russia, Britain, the U.S., and Germany, who all came together to make this deal after two years of negotiation with Iran. Now, uh, and by the way, I think the president misspoke there at one point. He said that Iran will have access to Iran's complete supply chain. I think he meant the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, will have access. Um, That said, he talked about consider what happens without this deal. That no deal means no constraint on the program, and on that, I believe he's absolutely right. Now, you can believe this is uh, not a good enough deal. You can even believe the president is not accurately uh, describing the deal, but without a deal, there is no constraint. He's absolutely right, and if you wonder what that means, take a look back at the Bush administration, who decided they were not going to go along with the uh, with the Clinton uh, administration's deal with North Korea when they came into office. George W. Bush talking about, and uh, they decided that they were not going to deal with uh, North Korea at all, and now North Korea is a nuclear state with a number of nuclear weapons. So if you don't want to deal with Iran— then that's what you're going to get. Or you're going to get a war. And I suspect that a lot of these Republicans would like that war. They would like to send your children to another war in the Middle East. Senator uh, South Carolina Senator uh, Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican presidential candidate, he likened the deal to declaring, quote, war on Israel. Donald Trump, our friend, uh, said that he could have uh, liberated Americans now held captive in Iran in under two minutes had he led the uh, Vienna talk, because apparently there's uh, at least four Americans uh, being held prisoner in in Iran. And he and Donald Trump feels we shouldn't have made any deal with him unless we got those Americans back. Okay. Jeb Bush says the nuclear agreement announced by the Obama administration today is dangerous, deeply flawed, and short-sighted. Didn't go into details about how it's deeply flawed, but he said a comprehensive agreement should require Iran to verifiably abandon, not simply delay its pursuit of nuclear weapons capability. The clerical te- the clerical leaders in Tehran routinely preach death to America, death to Israel, and through their acts of terror, they mean it. We must take these threats seriously. I believe that uh, we do take these threats seriously, and frankly, I believe that's why it's important uh, to negotiate with them and... Uh, <laughs> yeah just as we did with the Soviet Union who was far more dangerous than Iran then you've got uh, ridiculous guys like uh, Texas former Texas governor Rick Perry who says president obama's decision to sign a nuclear deal with iran is one of the most destructive foreign policy decisions in my lifetime
1: never mind that whole iraq yeah. war thing yeah, you know it's... that was just uh, a blip
0: yeah Well, and speaking of, uh, you know, when Jeb Bush says uh, that this is a dangerous, deeply flawed and short sighted deal, (laughs) who knows uh, dangerous, deeply flawed and short sighted deals better than Bush's do? Uh, But since I think Scott Walker, along with uh, Trump and Bush, but I think Scott Walker has right now, anyway, the best trajectory to win the nomination. I want to take a look at what he actually said uh, about this Iran deal yesterday in his announcement speech when he announced he was going to be running for the uh, Republican nomination. Here's Scott Walker. Iran is not a place to do business with. Looking ahead... We need to terminate the bad deal with Iran on the very first day in office. We need to terminate that deal on the very first day in office. Put in place crippling economic sanctions on Iran and convince our allies to do exactly the same thing. Okay, so let's take a look at that. Scott Walker says we need to terminate the deal on the first day in office and impose crippling sanctions. Writing over at Salon, Simon Malloy points out that this is silly, that sanctions don't work that way, that the sanctions won't be crippling until you get other countries to sign on to them. Uh, that, you know, if the U.S. alone could cripple Iran with sanctions, we wouldn't need our allies to get on board here. Would-be President Walker's Iran policy aims are completely backwards. Malloy writes, "Uh, Walker seems to think that the U.S. will have the standing and credibility to assemble a a multilateral sanctions regime against Iran immediately after he unilaterally detonates the diplomatic framework that our allies have painstakingly worked on for so long. The sanctions that finally end up bringing Iran to the negotiating table took decades, decades to put in place. It required Herculean diplomatic efforts spanning multiple administrations. The uh, idea that cooperate that cooperation was necessary because, as Brookings Institution points out, quote, so long as the Iran sanctions regime remained primarily a unilateral American construct, its effects were limited and tolerable for Iran. Yes, that's right. At the beginning of the Bush administration, Iran had a few hundred uh, 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 nuclear, what do they call them? Uh, Centrifuges. Thank you. Centrifuges. At the end, they had tens of thousands because they did nothing. But now, says Simon Malloy, Scott Walker is promising to replicate uh, this success after having broken faith with all the partners that he would need for these sanctions. So he was talking about the success of the sanctions to get them to the table. And the first time he wants to throw that all away, he won't even be able to blame Iran for breaking the deal. It would all be on Scott Walker and he'd be handing Iran a ready made excuse to plow ahead with nuclear weapons development if they wanted to. The Scott Walker foreign policy, he says, accomplishes the remarkable feat of making the United States the bad faith actor in a dispute with Iran. That's right. If Russia and China and Europe don't go along with these sanctions, the U.S. is all alone. Iran moves ahead. They have absolutely uh, you know, no reason to not continue any kind of nuclear program. Uh, Scott Walker knows nothing about foreign policy. But he might know plenty about the Constitution, or at least what he uh, believes the Constitution says, and we are going to come back and talk about that. We can laugh at Scott Walker on the uh, foreign policy, I guess. But not on domestic policy and not where he and a lot of the other Republicans in the race hope to take this country, what they believe the Constitution actually requires. And we're going to talk about that with my guest, Ian Millhiser, right after this break. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your broadcast. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com here with you. Um, okay, well, it's a somewhat serious day with the uh, nuclear Iran treaty and, of course, uh, the Republicans who are clowning themselves in its wake, uh, not taking it seriously at all, but doing what they usually do. And, of course, that has been the case for much of this election season, which is a lot of fun, I, w- I grant you. No one, frankly, likes talking about Donald Trump more than I do, I suspect, uh, even though I do my best to to try to keep it limited. Um, but, you know, d- trying to uh, find something serious in this election season and draw a serious difference between the candidates. You know, one thing that has, has long driven me absolutely crazy, with all the fun and the idiocy of our, our current presidential primary election uh, politics aside... The notion that both parties are the same, that there's uh, not a dime's worth of difference between the two major parties, frankly, that has always been to me absurd and maddeningly lazy, just absolutely lazy. Yes, there is a lot that they are similar on, no doubt, but I would argue there is much more that they are different on, at least as far as our country is concerned, at least as far as how uh, their policies and their appointments in office ultimately affect we the people constitutional law expert Ian Milheiser helps us draw an important key difference today between not just the two major parties but but the major philosophical and thus legal divide that is growing it is it is growing in our country there's a reason why Donald Trump is doing so well and not just because he's a good TV uh, Scott Walker Ian Milheiser persuasively argues in his piece today at Think, Think Progress. Uh, the piece is headlined, The Right Wing Dog Whistle Buried in Scott Walker's Announcement Speech. Really personifies the difference, I would argue, between the two major parties and their governing philosophy, their political philosophy, their judicial philosophy. But I would argue that while Scott Walker most directly personifies this legal philosophy right now between these two parties, at least if we don't look at Rand Paul. But it's also what Scott Walker is making the case for is what the GOP as a whole has become. And and this is now a cornerstone of the two major parties governing philosophy at this point. Uh, no, No matter who wins the nomination, this draws a distinction, frankly, between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Uh, here's just a, a, a small clip, a small uh, paragraph from Ian Milheiser's piece today. He writes, echoing anti-government rhetoric that has been a mainstay of Republican stump speeches since the Reagan era, Scott Walker, in his announcement speech, declares his opposition to the so-called top-down government-knows-best approach we hear from politicians in Washington. Yet, in the very next sentence of his speech, he describes his anti-government philosophy in very specific terms. He says, quote, as long as you don't violate the health and safety of your neighbors, go out and start your own career, build your own business, live your own life. This framework, writes Ian Milheiser, where people are free to do whatever they wish, so long as they do not violate others' health and safety, is the cornerstone of what Walker labels as freedom. And I would argue that this is more and more becoming uh, what the Republican Party labels as freedom, labels as the role of government. As long as, uh, as, long as every, you know, everyone can uh, be health, healthy and, and safe, do whatever you want. Business can do whatever it wants. And I think that's underscored uh, Scott Walker's term in office as governor of Wisconsin. And that's uh, part of why he thinks that, hey, you know, courts, uh, the government, we don't need to protect the unions. The hell with them. They're on their own. Good luck to them. If the uh, business owners don't want to deal with unions, the business owners don't have to. And uh, there is no place for the uh, legislature, or a governor, or a president to say otherwise. Here to talk about this and and this distinction, where it came from, and why it's important, uh, is Ian Milheiser, constitutional law expert over at Think Progress. Hey, Ian, welcome back to the broadcast, sir.
3: Good to be back. Thanks so much.
0: Sure. Um, I, 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 have, have I made sense, have I begun at least to make sense uh, uh, of what you were getting at in your piece about the right-wing dog whistle buried in Scott Walker's announcement speech? And then we could talk a little bit about the the history of this health and safety notion that that's all government is, is supposed to be there to protect.
3: Sure. I, I mean, this is a notion, you know, if you go back and you read a lot of libertarian scholarship, both older libertarian scholarship and modern libertarian scholarship, Well if you go back and you read a lot of the older Supreme Court cases from the beginning of the 20th century, mm-hmm. that made it virtually impossible for us to have meaningful labor regulation in this mm-hmm. country. Um, if you go back to that, you know, one idea that comes up over and over again is this idea that there are certain subject matters that the government's allowed to regulate on, and it's not allowed to touch other areas. So, one subject matter, one thing, one framework that is frequently used in very radical libertarian literature is a notion that the government should only be regulating in order to do things that benefit the health or the safety of individuals, and that it doesn't have any power beyond that, um, or its power beyond that is very small. So, when I saw that line in Walker's speech, mm-hmm. Know, it, it struck me as something that it's probably not a coincidence that he is using the exact same framework that I've seen time and time again in very radical anti-government scholarship. And
0: and this uh, this phrase, talking about government, it's the government's job to protect health and safety, end of story, everything else, you're on your own, good luck to you. This is not a new idea. I mean, this is, uh, though it is being adopted, it seems to me, more and more by the modern Republican Party, which is becoming more and more like the Libertarian Party, which is kind of why I threw in Rand Paul in- into my introduction here, because I think uh, he is of the same philosophy. This is not a new idea. As you mentioned, uh, Ian Milheiser, it was brought up in the early 1900s. It played a part in, in a number of uh, uh, court decisions, Supreme Court decisions, in the uh, during the Progressive Era, and I guess as a response to that Progressive Era, but but it was rejected by those same courts over a hundred years ago, was it not?
3: It was about eighty years ago that this idea was rejected. Mm-hmm. So you know the the, the most famous case um, in the space is is the Lochner decision, which is a decision that like a number of you know a faction within the Republican Party. Including most recently in his column this weekend, George Will, um, it's this discredited Supreme Court decision that they're trying to revive. Um, And what it did was it claimed that there is this fabricated freedom to contract, which basically means that like if you agree to work in terrible working conditions for no pay and awful hours, tough luck, you have the right to have to follow that contract. No matter what the terrible conditions were that led to you agreeing to um, to work in those terrible conditions, it was a way of invalidating labor laws. So it was used to invalidate the minimum wage, it was used to invalidate laws protecting workers. Uh, it was a terrible Supreme Court decision. Um, the part of the holding of that decision was the idea that labor regulation itself was not a subject matter that the government was allowed to regulate. So the government couldn't just say, you know, workers aren't making enough money, they're not being treated fairly, and so we're going to pass this law in order to make working conditions better. It said there's only a limited set of subject matters that they could regulate. The workplace, um, health and safety were the two big ones, also morals came up in that mm-hmm. in that decision. Um, but actual, just like, we want to make sure that people are paid enough and that you know they have good working conditions, that wasn't allowed. So, you know, it was a very similar framework to, you know, the framework that Walker was describing when he said that government should only be in the business of looking out for the, the health and safety of individuals.
0: And and, and doesn't that know, and, and just to be clear, that... Uh, that idea has been rejected by the courts over the past 80 years who have underscored that, yes, government can set these various standards for contracts and labor and minimum wage and all of that. Right. So the idea that the only thing the government could could deal with was health and safety issues has been rejected.
3: Right. You know, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why you why you want a law. I mean, sometimes you do want a law to protect the public health. That's what the Affordable Care Act is. Um, but you know, sometimes you recognize that there's some workers who are being treated unfairly, not because they're being killed, not because their health is endangered, but because they're working too many hours for not enough money. Mm-hmm. And you know, the government's allowed to do something about that too. And um, you know, the government is allowed to say that we want to do, we want to engage in programs to stimulate economic growth. They're allowed to say that you know, people when they reach a certain age um shouldn't be um shouldn't be forced to work until they're eighty um because they have no other source of income um and so you know there's lots of legitimate reasons why the government should want to make law, well, this idea that you know, the government's power is limited to this tiny list of subject matters is, is, is a long ago discredited idea.
0: And, and, and to be clear, we're not talking about uh, Scott Walker or, or the Republican Party at large disagreeing with th- these ideas, saying that, well, uh, you may want to set a, a minimum wage. I'm against setting a minimum wage. What they're basically saying is that government... Can't that it's unconstitutional, or at least that's what the Lochner decision uh, seemed to be saying, that it was unconstitutional, even if the people, uh, you know, with their elected representatives, decided that they would like uh, the government to, uh, you know, d- determine what the minimum wage should be, c- determine how, you know, what, what the retirement age should be. Uh, even if the democratically elected officials determine this through the democratic process, they can't. They're not allowed. It's unconstitutional under this, uh, under this thinking, correct?
3: Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, the, that's really what Lochner was about, mm-hmm. and that's what, well, you know, I mean, I think arguably the single most important political story of the last, you know, six to seven years mm-hmm. has been the wholesale abandonment by conservatives in this country of, the, of judicial restraint. Mm -hmm. You know, know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush got up and promised to appoint modest judges, promised to appoint restrained judges when they were against judicial activism. And as soon as Obama signs a law that they don't like, they're fabricating garbage legal arguments to take it out. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, my, my point is that you know, one thing that has transformed, you know, amongst the American right in the last several years, is a desire to, you know, implement their agenda through any means necessary. That means bypassing the democratic process and just getting their friends on the Supreme Court to implement it. They're happy to do that. Now, as they discovered this past term, there is a point where the justices we have now, or at least five or six of them are willing to stay up and stand up and say, no, that, that's a bridge too far. Um, but what worries me is that when the next president is sworn in, there are going to be three justices over the age of 80 and mm-hmm. one more who's coming up on that. Um, so who, you know, the question of who is appointing the justices and you know, whether they want to go this route of, over, of uh, overruling the democratic process and how far they want to take it in overruling the democratic process is very important, because if we have four new justices um, during the next president's first term, you're, you know, a whole lot of stuff that wasn't on the table before is suddenly on the table.
0: And let me underscore that point, Ian Millhiser, uh, the democratic process, because that is essentially what this is about. You, you've, you've got two uh, factions here, and I, I would say that, again, this is becoming the Republican Party's uh, governing philosophy, which is that... It is none of the government's business to make these decisions, to do these things. I would argue that that itself is a direct challenge to democracy. In other words, if we, the people, elect these officials and these officials, uh, you know, choose to enact Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, never mind if it's a good bill or if it's a bad bill, it is a reflection of democracy. And what they are saying is... Democracy should be overridden by the courts because the Constitution says government cannot do these certain things. Am yeah. I? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, I, I guess I should caveat that by saying that obviously there are some cases where we do want the courts to step in and the Constitution tells us what those are. So, you know, we want the Constitution to step in and or the courts to step in to prevent unconstitutional discrimination. Mm-hmm. you know we want the Constitution to step in and prevent um censorship um you, you know, there's certain things that are actually in the Constitution, but the point here, you know the point for Lochner case is they were just making stuff up. <laughs> uh, you know there's there there's you know there's nothing about this notion that you read the Fourteenth Amendment, as the court said in Lochner. And there's some invisible freedom to contract in there that invalidates labor laws.
0: Really? Um, you yeah.
3: know, nor, for that matter, is there anything in the Constitution that said we couldn't have the Affordable Care Act. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, what they are doing here is they're trying to effectuate a wholesale transfer of power from the two branches of government that are, that are elected to the one branch of government that aren't elected that it is not elected, and and I don't care what your agenda is. Like that's not something that should be done.
0: And and they're making the argument that essentially, if it's not in the constitution, the government, the elected government, cannot do it. That seems to me to be the argument. And that, as I say, that that argument has been around for a long time. It was thoroughly rejected. It seems to me over the past hundred years. But it is now coming back. It is coming back in the in the guise of the modern Republican Party. I think uh, Scott Walker really personifies that whether he understands the uh, uh, the legal basis, uh, Ian, as as you draw it out, I don't know and, and you know, and how much uh, you know the, the the Donald Trump's and the Fox Newses out there understand it at all where this uh, idea comes from, I don't know either. I mean, I think they're just out there you know trying to cause trouble and as soon as they're elected to office, they're going to... All of a sudden find that there's all kinds of things they actually can do, uh, even though they're not mentioned in the Constitution. And as a matter of fact, Scott Walker, as an elected official, has done uh, quite a bit of that. You you point out in your article at uh, Think Progress that this is, after all, the same Scott Walker who voted for a constitutional amendment protecting marriage discrimination. He opposed a law protecting the right of one member of a same-sex couple to visit their sick partner in the hospital. Um, You know, it seems like when these guys uh, take office, there's all kinds of activist things they think that the government ought to do. Uh, But, you know, as a general governing philosophy, it seems more and more that they just um, the way they oppose things is by saying, oh, you're just not allowed to do it. It's unconstitutional. Never mind making the argument why I disagree, why I'd like to do something else. It's just unconstitutional. That seems to me though it was rejected by the Republican Party for decades, seems to me where the Republican Party is going as a whole at this point. Do do you get that sense, Ian?
3: Well, you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when John Yoo was telling the Bush administration Mm -hmm. that based on the president's mere say-so, someone could be tossed in Gitmo, and there was nothing you could do to get them out, (laughs) um, regardless of whether or not they'd done anything wrong. So, like, you know i mean it's certainly the case that there is um a flexibility in terms of how they they view the constitution um depending on whether or not they have to control the white house um, that said what what's really concerning is that you know when i look at the power dynamics within the conservative legal movement i mean i cover the federalist society's convention every year mm-hmm. which is the you know big conservative legal group that's very influential. When I just speak to my friends who are conservative lawyers, I, I mean what I see is that you know it's not that people want to bring back Lockner are now like the only people in the Republican Party and that's their their central goal in the same way that repealing of the Affordable Care Act is. But it is true that that movement is ascendant within the Republican coalition. Mm-hmm. And when it comes time for um, a Republican president to be picking judges or to be picking justices, um, that faction is likely to have a disproportionate amount of influence on on the selection process. Yep. Um, and that's very frightening. You know, you know, I mean, we do not want there to be a single justice, much less five, who think that we can't have something like a minimum wage in this country.
0: And and that's really what it comes down to, because it's not just, uh, you know, I think a lot of people look at it and they say, well, you know, a president is only in office for a few years. Uh, they still have to work with Congress in order to pass laws and so forth. But, you know, we are still dealing to this day with so many of the uh, judicial appointees, not just the Supreme Court, but the judicial appointees of George W. Bush and how that has affected you know, every law in this country across, uh, you know, d- across the nation. So I-, I just think it's incredibly naive. It's incredibly lazy. Uh, yeah. You know, Citizens United comes to mind. The you know, these are laws that made their way up or or, or judicial findings that, you know, that make their way up through the appeals court, through the uh, Supreme Court for generations based on these elections. Uh, so. Uh, there, there's a lot more at stake, I think, than just simply a uh, you know a four-year term, an eight-year term, or even a, a appointments to the Supreme Court. This affects the way the country moves forward as a whole. So I, I don't know. I, I'm just I, I, it's it's maddening to me when I hear people say there's there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties, Ian. Well, I mean, one other thing I'll
3: say is like you know there's there's a great deal of difference between the two parties. I think there's also a fair amount of difference within the Republican Party on this question of how much power they want to transfer to the judiciary. I mean, remember that, you know, we just saw, you know, in King v. Burwell, this case trying to nuke the Affordable Care Act, two of the Republicans on the court did the right thing and three didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you know, I, I'm trying to suss out, this is probably one of my big projects over the course of the next six months. Where, like, each of the 15,000 or however many candidates ultimately wind up declaring um, for the Republican nominee, you know, how, you know, where they stand on this issue. Because, you know, I mean, we don't want five Roberts on the Supreme Court. Roberts' views on subjects like race are abhorrent. But if we have five Alitos, that's the end of everything.
0: You know, I'm going to look forward to your project as you suss this out. Because while you say there is a difference within the Republican Party, I'm not so sure there is. I think you're right. You point out a difference on the court, on the Supreme Court, right now. But I think the party, the Republican Party, is becoming more and more unified behind the Scott Walkers and even the, uh, to a certain extent, the, uh, the the Donald Trumps out there and and the Rand Paul philosophy. I don't think there is quite as much of a split as as you might uh, suggest. I think the. The reasonable, moderate uh, Republicans who used to believe in the idea that, you know, you, you would you would fight over policy based on, you know, its pros and cons rather than these huge constitutional philosophies. I think those uh, Republicans are getting t- tossed out and the, the Republican Party is becoming Some some uh, bastardized combination of Scott Walker and Donald Trump. But we'll see. We'll see if I'm right. And I look forward to more of your work on this. uh, As always, Ian, Uh, check out Ian Melheiser's article over at uh, Think Progress. The right wing dog whistle buried in Scott Walker's announcement speech. I think it's important. I think it may be even more important than Ian thinks it is. But we'll see. Ian, always great to talk to you, sir.
3: Thanks
0: so much for having me. You bet. This is just, you know, something that drives me crazy, Tessie Doyen, when I hear people say this. Uh, no difference. You know, and there are, there are obviously too many things on which uh, the Republicans and the Democrats are alike, you know, when it comes to our banking system, when it comes to support from, you know, uh, corporations. Right. When it comes to foreign policy. But there is a difference. If you look at what Scott Walker did up in Wisconsin, you know, he obviously he's crushing the unions. He just passed a right to work, a so-called right to work bill. He, he took away collective bargaining, uh, which was obviously what the big fight was about in 2011 that got him to the recall election that he successfully won. Uh, they took that away, uh, you know, through the legal process, through the Democratic process, but... Uh, you know, I would the the philosophy behind it is that government has no business in you know the way that businesses make contracts with workers with, with the with the people that government has no business in in healthcare.
1: Which is nuts, you know, because it says in the Constitution, you know, the general welfare, which is very broad, very small words, but a very broad scope that the government, the federal government can uh, take action in to protect the general welfare of the populace. And I think that these are. It's just shocking to me that we are still having to fight about this stuff. Well, you know? it's not
0: that we're still having it; it is that we are again having okay, it. Okay, again we, having it. That, well, that we we no, settled. No, that's a good
1: point. What you're saying, yes. This- uh,
0: we settled a lot of this, and and now we're back to that same part. You know, deciding what role government has. A- again, not even you know. Should the minimum wage be that, Uh, you know, should people, uh, you know, be allowed to have health care at an affordable rate? But should the government have any role in that or is it all completely up to the free market? Good luck to you, even though elected officials who, in theory, in theory, I underscore, represent the people. They have been elected. They are a reflection of, you know, what the people want in, in in a representative democracy. Should those elected officials even be allowed to make these laws. And, you know, this is what we are now seeing more and more of from the Republican Party. They're, they just don't think that this is the role of government. They're not going to argue against it. They are going to put people, they are going to stack the courts with people who agree, who share this philosophy. And I think that's very dangerous. And I think that, uh, you know, listen, I don't care whether you uh, vote Republican or Democratic. I don't care if you vote at all. Uh, you know, people want to vote independent, vote green. Please do. But please understand the difference. And please understand what happens if your green candidate doesn't win, your independent candidate doesn't win. Uh, and if it leads to a Republican winning or a Democrat winning, there is a difference in governing philosophy that affects the entire nation, affects people, you know, that you know. You know, when you or your your kids or your grandparents get to retire, whether they can afford to have health care or whether they're going to go bankrupt. And if the government doesn't have a right to say in it, then then what are we the people for? What the hell are elections for? It nullifies elections. It nullifies democracy. But that is very clearly in my mind where at least one of the two major parties is going. All right, we are going to a quick break here, and we'll come back with more Broadcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to your Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here with you. Oh, let's try to lighten it up a little, shall we? It's been a heavy show today. Yeah. Uh, And so uh, no better time than to make fun of the state of Texas.
1: Always a favorite.
0: Yeah. I thought you were going to take offense at that.
1: No, it's always, uh, to me, I no, I don't, Well, actually. you know,
0: Desi Doyen and I have had a longstanding uh, uh, disagreement about uh, who who's worse, worse, her home state or my home state. Now, I'm from Missouri. Yeah. And, and you're from Texas. Right. And it used to be hands down Texas. But something has happened to Missouri since I left, and I, I just want to apologize to the nation for that. Uh, something has happened there. Uh, it used to be a... Uh, what do they call A purple state, a swing yeah. state. No longer. Now it's just a, a wingnut state. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, mom and dad. You got to get out. Uh, but in any event, they. Uh, in Missouri County will lower flags to mourn gay marriage ruling for a year. What? Yes, an all Republican county commission in Missouri voted unanimously. On Monday, to observe a full calendar year of mourning after the Supreme Court's gay marriage decision, the uh, flags at the Dent County Courthouse and Judicial Building will now fly at below half-staff on the 26th day of every month from July 2015 until July 2016 to mark the day the Supreme Court handed down the ruling that legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. Very sad, sad day in Dent County, Missouri, yeah?
1: Well, isn't that a violation of, uh, of the First Amendment that the government shall make no law respecting religion? Because if the county commissioners say we're going to take this down because we have a religious objection to it.
0: I, well, actually, I don't know if they said it was a religious objection. They said that they're, they're just mourning. They're just sad. They're sad. They They're have a sad, sad. That,
1: that, that some people get to get married now.
0: Dent County has a sad. Okay. Uh, this is uh, President presiding commissioner Daryl Skiles filed a letter into the record ahead of the voting, ahead of the vote. Oh, you're right. It is religious, uh, mm-hmm. saying that his opposition to the U.S. high court's stamp of approval of what God speaks of as abomination.
1: Well, there you go.
0: But no, but it doesn't restrict anybody's religion. It just, I guess... Imposes but it's, theirs it's, on uh, everyone. Else.
1: Separation of church and state, I think, is what I should have been saying. Even though those words are not explicitly in the Constitution, there is a very well established legal precedent for us to keep those things separated.
0: Well, you got to keep them separated. Yeah. The uh, vote by the three commissioners comes days after Governor Jay Nixon, a Democrat sometimes, uh, after he signed an executive order directing all state agencies to comply with the court's ruling. But Uh, The the county granted its first license, marriage license application from a gay couple on July 1, though the current official form still only has blanks where it used to say man and woman. Uh, Recorder of Deeds Cindy Ard told the paper she would continue to issue marriage licenses to same sex couples in accordance with the law. Some people might not agree with it, she said, but I am not going to discriminate. I'm not here to judge anybody. Good for her. Good for Cindy Yard, bad for the lousy commissioners of Dent County. And now, uh, well, I was going to, you'll be happy to know, I'm actually not going to beat up on Texas. I'm actually going to give some credit to Texas.
1: Oh, okay. That's That's, a switch.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, uh, because it's not really to Texas. It's to Whataburger because I love Whataburger. Yeah, a. it's
1: a great it's and, a great fast-food burger yeah. chain. And, and it's B, only in Texas, I guess.
0: Uh, well, no, I've seen them in Arizona, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, they, they ha- are not going along with uh, Texas's new open carry policy, uh, saying they don't want to put their, uh, their workers uh, and customers through the ordeal of having to decide who is a threat and who is not when they walk in there carrying their guns. So the... The uh, Greg Abbott, your uh, governor, and you don't even live there, but I'm making him your governor (laughs) of Texas, uh, has uh, recently uh, signed a law allowing for people to carry all the guns they want openly uh, in the state of Texas. However, he allows a private business to uh, to to overrule that to say if we don't if they don't want guns in there they don't have to have them so Whataburger has said no we don't want your guns in here your open carry guns so good for Whataburger there uh, so see I'm agreeing uh, but uh, that Texas is okay at least Whataburger is at least for that part uh, so never mind Missouri never mind Texas I think we can both agree to hate Oklahoma today. The Oklahoma Republican Party is in hot water once again. This is a post that appeared on the Oklahoma Republican Party's Facebook page. This is not just some, you know, w- crazy wingnut uh, extremists who put this on their page. This is actually the Oklahoma Republican Party. They gave us a civics lesson today. They said. Um, the food stamp program administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture is proud to be distributing this year the greatest amount of free meals and food stamps ever to 46 million people. Now, they're they're already wrong because actually in 2013 there was 47.6 million people got food stamps, but whatever. That was their point that uh, they're very proud to be dis- distributing that. Meanwhile, they added the National Park Service administered administered by the U.S. Department of the Interior, asks us, quote, please do not feed the animals, unquote. Their stated reason for the policy is because, quote, the animals will grow dependent on handouts and will not learn to take care of themselves. Wow. Thus ends today's lesson in irony, says the Oklahoma Republican Party GOP, comparing uh, food stamp recipients... To animals.
1: Today's Republican Party.
0: There you go. That's them. My thanks to our producer, Desi doyan to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest, Ian Milheiser of Think Progress, and of course, to all of our affiliates and to you, the listener, for sharing part of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, stop by Bradblog.com or go over to iTunes. Download the whole thing, subscribe so you get every thrilling episode. And while you're there, give us a good review. Makes it easier for other people to find this broadcast. Uh, you can also find and follow us on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. We'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, find us over at BradBlog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Oh, good luck, world. Everybody.